Hello, Sword People. Welcome to the 101st episode of The Sword Guy Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. And let me take a moment here to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It has helped us keep the microphones running over the last 100 episodes. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'm here today with Christian Tobler, chivalric combat instructor, author of many books, including Secrets of German Medieval Swordsmanship, which launched the study of Lichtenauer in the Anglosphere. We'll talk about that in a bit. Fighting with the German Longsword, In St. George's Name, an anthology of medieval German fighting arts, In Service of the Duke, and many more, not to mention his latest, which is Lance, Spear, Sword and Messer, a German medieval martial arts miscellany. He founded the Order of Silahar in 1979, when I was approximately five years old, <laughs> to pursue the ideals and practices of chivalry, which includes a medieval martial arts school, the Silahar Fech School, with chapters and study groups across the USA. Alumni include no less than the first guest on this show, Jessica Finley. So, without further ado, Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Guy. It's wonderful to be here. We have, it's been a long time since we've talked, so it's uh, this is really great. Yeah, nice to catch up. Um, and just to orient everyone, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, we are in Oxford, Connecticut, which uh, for those on diverse sides of the planet is in uh, the New England section of the United States. Uh, the town we're in is a semi-rural one, and I'm on top of a close to 800-foot-tall um, hill or I suppose some locals here would like to call that a mountain, but it hardly qualifies. <laughs> but uh, you have to go uphill to get to where I live. Excellent. So when the when the sea level rises, you'll be <laughs> you'll be safe in your garden. Yes, yes, um, very safe. Um, you know, not much in the way of food supply here, unless I take to deer hunting, which I imagine I should be very poor at. But uh, oh, I don't know, you still for it. <laughs> <laughs> It's a proper chivalric pursuit, isn't it? Yes, that's true. It's true. <laughs> um, okay, now I think we should start at sort of at the beginning, and you know, I, I very often meet people who've been you know, training this for like ten years already, which means they started in like twenty twelve. Okay, and you started back in the seventies. So your order is one of the oldest historical martial arts organizations out there. Um, what made you decide to found it and what it was like, what was it like sort of back in the 70s? How did this all come about? Well, one thing I should clarify from the get-go is my studies on historic martial arts really date to the mid-90s. Um, okay. Very few people in the United States knew there was such a thing as historic martial arts that were preserved in the late 70s. Uh, the order started out, um, you know, not even exactly with a medieval motif when it first began. We were really just organized and drawn to the idea of the ideals of uh, courageous nobility. We, at the time, were not sophisticated to know it, but we were we were trying to answer the philosopher and polymath um, John Ruskin's famous question: "Might we not live a nobler dream than this?" and uh, 
by fits and starts, uh, the order crystallized around a more medieval motif as it got into the early 80s. But our martial exploits back in the day were, you know, were very much just evolving organically from, you know, playing with swords and letting them see how they spoke to our hands. Um, the results of that, uh, I will say, would not be particularly impressive by any of today's standards, <laughs> nor were my early forays into, uh, into historic martial arts proper. As I, I mentioned in part of the new book, uh, we first bumbled about in the, the mid-90s with uh, looking at the Pisani Dossi Fiori and, uh, and, and, the, uh, and the results one gets of just having some bad translations of the verse there. Uh, I remember that. Uh, Terrible photostat images to look at. Uh, yeah, with new translations sort of pasted on top. Uh, yes, that yes. one. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. that was so bad. Yes, yes, dreadful, dreadful. So, but we were so excited when we found it. Well, <laughs> you know, any any scrap of food to a starving man, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, so to, you know, to say the results of that were comical is to be insufficiently self-deprecating. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so so you started your group in the like late seventies, um, and you were living the nobler dream. What did that actually entail? I think it's um, was a response to just sort of a deep dissatisfaction with with the, the state of the world, and mm -hmm. and just a, a gravitation towards the idea of a chivalric code. Now. You know, there, there'll be a number of listeners who will, will be quick to say, well, this was honored more in the breach than, than in fidelity to it. But this is true with lots of moral codes. And of course, we looking historically, we do not find a single unified chivalric code. Um, but we have this whole idea of the, the knight in his idealized form as a, a sacred warrior. He's not like, um, a cop on the beat. Um, so when we see even in the modern modern day where the idea of knighthood is is used as a springboard into even something as far flung as Star Wars, what makes someone like Darth Vader um, a terrible, scary villain? It's because he's a corrupted knight. He's someone that's violated this sacred charge um, to defend people and and to defend justice. So the idea of of using uh, knighthood. Uh, in its in its way, it's come down to us through through myth and legend, as a template for for behavior was very appealing to us, uh, finding dissatisfaction with many of the injustices we saw around us. Okay, that's so. In effect, you're you weren't trying to recreate the sort of um, the historical medieval knight. You were you were sort of recreating the. So the platonic ideal of the medieval knight. Yeah, exactly. And I, I would okay. I would argue it's not even even if it were desirable, it's not possible for us to recreate the medieval knight. We simply don't live in that context. Sure. And there are uh, myriad things that we can't experience the way they would have then. So every even if you wanted to do that, everything would be lensed through the present anyway. Yep. Um, it, I, you know, kind of a little bit tangentially, Guy, I, there's always an interesting thing that happens uh, in online discussions, which I, I try my best to avoid, as you can imagine. Yes. <laughs> these days. Um, but there'll always be sort of this pushback of, well, we can't really 
talk about chivalry in any meaningful way because what meant to them is not what it means to us. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. That's like saying we can't talk about democracy because we don't live in, you know, classical Athens. And we can't talk about Christianity because we're not in uh, one of St. Paul's uh, uh, soirees with a GNC, uh, you know, aristocratic ladies. You know, all these things change with time and yet have threads of continuity to them. So uh, if we can discuss any of those things that have existed over centuries, we certainly can discuss chivalry and what it might mean uh, as it's been passed down and altered and, and looked into the past as well through, through the lens of, of contemporaries. And knowing you as I do, I'm imagining that the thing that really matters most is how that ideal changes your actual behavior in the world. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll go so far as to say, you know, I creating, recreating historic martial arts with some fidelity or as close as we can uh, get to fidelity to them is important to me as, as a researcher. But far more important is if, if someone can, can use this practice of martial arts and use it as a tool for their self-improvement, for wanting to to tease out and amplify what's best in themselves, that's infinitely more important to me. That's that's something that means something in the world. I could not agree with you more. That is literally the whole point of making these arts available to people in my yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. Like, otherwise, it would just be an amusing pastime. But the reason I've spent the last 20 odd years of my life doing it full time for a living is because I can't think of a better way to help people get to to get out of this thing what I have got out of it, which is multiple opportunities to be better than I was, some of which I've taken. Well, that, that's part of the process too, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, okay, so um, how did you get into the... Okay, you started with this Fiore, very dodgy Fiore, um, photocopy that we all remember and I sort of stuck with that and stayed in the Italian tradition and you veered away into the German sources so um, could you tell us how that happened how did you come across them oh well um, I will give you um, two words to answer that Jörg Bellinghausen ah that's Jörg's fault okay well oh, I need yeah, to get so, Jörg on this show Scold so, for so it. many many of uh, my early and and to this day, still colleagues met on the, the old Hacka forum before John Clements turned it into, into Arma. Um, like there's not a lot I can say about that, except we met a lot of really cool people um, through that early interaction. It was the only place to hang out on the internet where historical swordsmanship was discussed. That's yeah. right. And um, on the old Hacka website, um, Jörg had donated a, a partial translation of the unarmored longsword section from the, you know, the so-called Ringek manuscript. And here was, you know, step-by-step -step instructions. Set your left foot here and then spring out with your right foot with the, as you deliver the blow, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so this was meat and potatoes to chew yep. on. Um, and so really it was a completely pragmatic thing for me. This was material I could use immediately and actually teach from. And then of course, you know, Yurik had not completed that translation, so I was drawn to, well, I've heard other people have made it, taken a crack at translating some of these things. Let me see what I can do with it. 
and okay. I translated the rest of that manuscript. Did you um, have a German background? I do not. Um, but you know, there's, as you know, from, from doing translation work yourself, um, there's not huge vocabularies in these manuscripts. They're, yeah. they're very, very technical. And, you know, just through a combination of pattern recognition and osmosis, you can get quite a bit done. Now, uh, there are a million things I would redo in the translation of, of Ring Eck if I were to revisit it today. Uh, partially because I, I worked through an intermediate um, step. Uh, Christoph Kindel in uh, Austria had done a full modern German transcription of that manuscript. And I used that as the basis for most of what I did with the rest of that book. Now, the verse I tackled myself, uh, which was extremely challenging. The verse, of course, <laughs> is very cryptic, uh, open to interpretation. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, to this day, you know, even my most recent translations of the verse, there's lots of stuff that is open to debate and that I debate with myself about. Sure. Um, but to answer your, you know, your question more succinctly, basically, I, I stumbled into the German stuff is what happened. <laughs> okay. And then, and then you never left. I mean, you'll, no, you'll, I never you'll left. be writing about the German material for what the last, going on for a quarter of a century. Oh, um, that does sound dreadfully old. No, 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 no. It sounds like, it sounds like, it sounds like at this stage, you probably have a pretty good idea what you're doing. So it's. Yeah, I see. I'm still reeling from you saying you were five years old when I co-founded the order. So. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was born in 1973 and, you know, at the end of 1973 at that. So, but you know, it, I was sort of in the, on the, in the in the first wave of historical martial arts as they were starting to be recreated in the early 90s, right? And that tends to be when people date the beginning of like the sort of systematic study of historical sources for reproducing historical fencing systems, right? But there are people who publish stuff earlier and who are doing work earlier. And so anytime I come across someone who, who sort of started things significantly before the nineties, it's always interesting to me to find out not just how they got into it when there wasn't even the beginnings of a historical martial arts community to draw on but also um, how it survived like you went you went like over a decade before there was much of a um, you know well we didn't even have a proper internet until the mid 90s and so, you know, that's 15 years after founding the order. Yeah, it's actually, you know, I'm very humbled when I, when I look at what some of the real early researchers did. So one of the things, you know, in our series of Fiori books that we have, and, and the Pisani Dossi is volume two, which is actually coming out out of order. <laughs> because yes, by we, you mean Freelance Academy Press. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, but we include uh, Novati's work in there and it's, it's astonishing the stuff that guy was able to get done without the internet right. uh, and how, and how close he came to finding a couple of the, at the time, um, you know, unidentified location, you know, Fiori manuscripts. It's, it's really astonishing. And he was writing in 1903, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. It's right around, right around there. Yeah. I mean, that, 
That's long before the internet. And yet people still somehow managed to get good work done. It's almost like they wrote letters to each other and actually visited archives and libraries and things and actually dug through books themselves. Yes, I know. For you know, <laughs> the, the nerve of them. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be fair, it was probably easier to get into some of these archives back then than it is now. Yeah, in some cases. I mean, it's so piecemeal, right? Uh, the, the one thing that's frustrating, um, we know, for instance, that there's certain manuscripts that were used to be in public institutions, but now have been dispersed into private collections. And, you know, we don't even know who that collector is. And um, so it's, they're, they're, in a way, there probably is no better access to some of this material than there was 100 years ago. Although... There is, I think, if you, if you add it all up, I think we have vastly better access than most. I and mean, we just go to Wigta now, and there are hundreds and hundreds of sources. Just there. And the amount and of stuff just, that's digitized now is astonishing. Just, oh, my God, it makes life so much easier. The youth of today, they don't know they're born. <laughs> oh, I, I, I chide my young students about all these kind of things. It's like, look, you, you've got like 200 books on HEMA you can buy today. And right. and you have uh, you have armor that's half decent you can order off the rack, you know? right? And swords had, you can just buy a sword, a good trendy long sword. You can just buy one. You can, you can buy really good swords. It, it's yeah. an, an embarrassment of riches, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So um, your sixth German medieval swordsmanship came out in two thousand one, I think. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and it is like the first of the here is a historical source and we are trying to recreate the martial arts from it. And I think it's the first publication of its type. Okay. Yes. So, okay. What gave you the idea to do that and how did you go about it? Um, so again, I had done the, the better part of the translation and then I had presented that material at a couple of the the earlier multi-instructor symposia, and um, it was um, it was very well received. You know that you know oh wow here's here's a here's another uh, really complete looking system. At the time, uh, Bob Sharon had been presenting uh, Fiori um, mm -hmm. to uh, to considerable enthusiasm, and now people saw hey here's another system that we we think we know quite a bit about, and. Um, it became just pretty obvious to to get the translation together into a book, and then as I looked at kind of you know page count, and I'm like, oh, this needs this needs something more. What if we were really audacious and actually shot some photography to to document what what we think this looks at looked like? Um, so it really it kind of happened from there. I think the other thing too, you know, that book really happened at a very critical time for uh, authors being able to produce this kind of material. And, and by that, I mean, Secrets happens right around the time where, where prosumer-grade digital cameras are uh. available on the market. There's no way I could have done that book with conventional photography at the time. It would have, I wouldn't have had the Too money expensive. to do it. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't have had the time because we were going out shooting in, in, in my side yard here at, at the house, We'd go out and shoot, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred pictures, come inside the house, put load them up on the computer, go through them. This looks good. This looks good. This looks like shit. This we have to redo this. Go right back outside again the same day, redo those bad photos, come yeah. back in and, and then at the end of the day, have something like 
you know, eight or 900 photos done from a shoot. You, you, you can't do that with conventional photography. It, it would not have been possible. Um, and um, certainly not with some, for a bunch of guys that had day jobs, right? Right. So um, the, the very fact that, you know, I had a buddy that had a, a good digital camera uh, was, was a game changer. That book could not have happened two years prior to that. It really couldn't. Wow. Okay. And it did. I, I actually think that the reason why most people who are doing longsword these days are doing German longsword is because of that book. If a Fiore translation and interpretation had come out first in English, I think most people would be doing Fiore now. Agreed. Because, because yeah, it just, it was extraordinary. We went from, um, like people who, who can't, who don't have the language skills to work with original Italian sources or original German sources. They just had nothing to work on, right? They could copy the pictures and stuff and that's about it. But then suddenly there's this, translation available with an interpretation and then suddenly it just it lowers the barrier to entry so much that I think there was this like this small tidal wave being kept back by that barrier and then when you drop the barrier with that book it was just scoosh and suddenly everyone was doing bloody German stuff <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> no that's all right I should have been yeah if if, if I I mean it, it took me until about what well, I guess I didn't really publish my sort of more academic interpretation of Fiore until a few years ago. So honestly, I mean, it took me 20 years to get to get, to get to that point. So um, it's no surprise that um, it worked out the way it did. So it, it's uh, just as a, a little sidebar on that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're a, I don't know if you're a, a classical movie fan at all, but um uh, you know, one of my favorite movies and a favorite of many for that enjoy those kind of films is, is uh, of course, the very famous Casablanca. But Casablanca, mm. when it was filmed, um, was at the time when they were making it, it was just on the, the roster of movies they were going to make that year. And nobody really thought much about it. But as they got close to completing the project, they realized, wow, we have we have gold here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow we struck gold. And that kind of is how secrets happened. To me, it was just a little, a little project. Like, you know what? I've got this translation. Um, I should do something with it. Let's, we should do some photos. That would be really cool. Um, and as we were getting to completion on it, I'm like, wow, this is going to be much bigger than I thought it was going to be. Um, right. I just, I just felt that click into place. And it, it's, it was everywhere. I mean, I first saw it because my friend Martin Page bought a copy immediately it came out and in Edinburgh before I went to, to Helsinki I think it was um, or maybe when I came back for a visit in that first few months and it was like holy crap this it, it felt like a game changer when I picked it up it was like alright this is this is the standard to which we must now all aspire <laughs> so um, are there any can you think of any downsides to having written it? Yeah. So I I created it as very much a, here is my presentation of what we think the system looks like. Because right. there was nothing else on the market, it ended up being used by a lot of folks as a training manual. Right. And, it's, and it is not 
uh, it is not optimized for that, and it was not intended to be. So sure. the fact that it you know it was adopted f- for that um, just because of a scarcity of material, it does. There were some problems, I think, for how some people trained. It was one of the things that drove me um, to do the first edition of Fighting with the German Longsword. I'm like, well, okay, people really need an actual training manual. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, and that's, that's what I wrote first. See, I wrote yeah. a training manual first yep. because yeah. I figured, okay, we have a, a way to go on the whole academic stuff, but you know, we can at least get people up and moving around with swords in a sensible and safe way now with this. <laughs> So yeah, because our my sources companion came out in the same year as your fighting with the German longsword. I think. Yeah, I think you. I think I think you came out like maybe three months before before me, three four months before. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you. Pretty sure swordsman's companion was first. Okay, well, I I mean, but that'd be down to the publisher. I think we were writing and actually sent them off at pretty much the same time, which is kind of interesting. So, did you find that fighting with the German longsword? Um, had a more predictable effect on on how people were actually training. Did it actually do its job? Yes. Yeah, I think it. Um, I think it. Um, you know, gave it gave some starting points, obviously, for people. You know, when you know you have to tell people about you know balance, explain how measure works, all those kinds of things to a modern audience before having them just you know get dumped into a a, a vat of uh, of technique. <laughs> and, and hope they don't uh, drown it. Um, so yeah, I do think it uh, was uh, a positive thing there. Now, of course, there's a million things I changed in that when I did the revised version of that in 2015. Um, but you know, hey, look, everything everything you hope moves towards uh, refinement, revision, and and uh, an improvement with time. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at it like any other field of research, right? If if a biology textbook is the same now as it was 15 years ago, then someone has not done any research. Right, right. Right? Um, uh, I think I think the pace of change is slowing down dramatically. I think we have a pretty stable idea as to what most of these manuals contain in terms of these are the techniques, these are the tactics. So I'm not I'm not seeing much change in that. For there's there's all sorts of developments in terms of how you train it, what you train it for, all that sort of thing. So I think maybe we're moving into the next phase of historical martial arts. Yeah, and um, you know there was there were there were things that that changed. Like uh, so, a lot of times I'll get I'll get questions about you know, hey, what did you what did you, what did you change in between? doing secrets and fighting or between fighting version one and fighting version two. And people always, they generally want to hear, you know, okay, how do you hold, are you holding this guard differently and all? And yes, there are some refinements there, but there's a lot more refinement for me in, in the mindset of it. And actually it's, um, it's very appropriate. I'm talking to you about this because you, uh, you actually play a, a very important part in what I'm about to say. Oh, okay. Um, so one of the things I overstressed early on in my, in really in any of my my early works, was this idea of controlling initiative in the fight with a lot of aggression. It was a very a, a very aggressive uh, salesmanship job I I did uh, on on how I thought that worked, and um, what was a real uh, water watershed mark for me was. Um, 
You may recall the first time we fenced, which I believe was in Texas. 2006, Dallas. 2006, yes. It's, yes. It's, one of the, it's one of the bouts I have talked most about. Yeah, since. well, it was a magnificent chess match. I, you know, I, I can't help but smile whenever I think about it. But it, when I came back from that trip, I really thought, you know, that was some of my best fencing I've done. And yet it was much more of a chess match than a, uh, an, an expression of aggression. Yeah. And I went back and I thought, okay, did I, did I fight that bout too cagey, too cagely to reflect the art that I claim to be studying? And I went back and, and did another deep read of, you know, one has to go back and read one's own translations because they're not necessarily sure. committed to memory. And, and I said, no, there's plenty of reason to suspect that this much more nuanced fight is in fact reflective of what's in the text. And it changed my emphasis on how I present the material. It doesn't didn't change, here's how I stand, here's I deliver this blow, but the tactical framework had a major shift, um, a sea change, if you will, in how I presented it as a direct result of that fight. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I, I am I'm honored, sir. Uh, that, was, that was great. It, it was a good fight. Um, and the thing I, one sort of detail that I remember from afterwards is when I told my students about it and was just sort of, you know, in raptures. And one of them said, so who won? And I was, I was honestly baffled. It took me a moment to kind of understand the question. <laughs> and then I said, we did. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it was, I you know, I think we both came away with, with um, a few bruises, but it was, yeah, it was just this glorious sort of, it actually felt like, I know, to me, it's one of the, I think it's the first time that it felt like Fiora's style and Lichtenau's style were meeting. Okay, obviously, we're both beginners in that, uh, in that, in those styles at that time, but relative beginners, yeah, compared to the masters themselves. But it actually felt like, you know, an Italian and a German arguing with each other. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. And okay, I, and yeah, I, you definitely were not, um, you were not treating the idea of, um, initiative as moving first, moving hard and making sure the other person can't move. It was more like you have the initiative when the movements that are happening now are the ones you have decided will happen. Yeah, it's a good way to yeah. frame that. I like that. So like, so like, you know, if you have your sword out in front of me, in front of you, stopping me coming forwards and you move it out of the way and I take that invitation, but it's your invitation. And so you have a prepared response. You have the initiative, right? I may be the one coming forward, but you have the initiative because you're the one who made me come forward. Yes. If you are the provocateur, you have the initiative indeed. Right. Um, okay. So. Is there anything else you've particularly changed your mind on? Um, stands out. This is an evolving thing, sure. Of course, like anything else, and and it's it really is what the 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 new book, uh, Lance Spear, Sword and Messer, is most focused on is context. Is you know what is the context of how the art was used, 
And the short answer is it was used for everything. It was used for fun. It was used for fitness. It was used for self-defense. It was used in war. It was used in duel. Um, And the, the book works to to examine all those different contexts and how we can see them, see hints of them in the texts um, and, um, and how that, that context is there right before our eyes if we know where to look for it and are open to looking for it. And that was really provoked by um, a wildly swinging pendulum I, I've observed over the last couple of years in online discourse. Oh, God. And, Anytime you say online discourse, I sort of go, oh no, what's coming? Well, I, I know just I know discourse is perhaps a little bit of a kind term there, but uh, you know it's early in the week and I'm feeling charitable. Uh, um, so um, the pendulum has tended to swing from the extremes of, hey, they use this art just for fun, just like we do, um, all the way to the other side, which is. This is a this is a killing art. This is used for killing. And you have to have a serious voice for that bit. Yes, serious. That's right. You have to have a very serious, yes. very serious, gravelly voice for that. And you have to also you have to have you have to have um, like military service that you can't talk about because it's too secret. Right. You have to let That's everyone right. know you did it, but you can't talk about it. <laughs> First rule of Fight Club: Don't talk about Fight Club. Right. right. Um, and it became clear to me that, and I actually kind of lost my. My usual, I try to keep a very polite demeanor on places like Facebook and all. But at one point, I yeah. finally cracked and I said, these are equally stupid propositions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. First of all, we know they fenced for fun, so we can't dismiss that. And second of all, hundreds of thousands of sharp swords were made in the 15th century. Do you really believe no one killed each other with them? <laughs> and, and we do have like records of people being killed with big swords. Like, right. <laughs> we even have so, skeletons with sword wounds still on them. Y- yes, yes, we do. And so, so I, you know, that really was a, a major spur to um, that affected what the book looks like in its final form. Of look, let's look at, let's look and see all the hints at the the context here. Now, one of the areas where that really became interesting to me was, you know, my original conventional understanding was we've got the unarmored um, material. German material, the Lichtenauer material, and then we have we have the, the mounted combat and the uh, you know mostly half sword with some spear stuff on on foot. And my original working thinking was you know both the mounted and the foot combat are purely for the duel. Um, what became clear is that particularly in the mounted combat is there's lots of uh, context for it being used in small-scale warfare, skirmishing, Mm. in in fact. And in some of the real early 16th century treatises, we see overt references to that. And I I talk about how uh, Jörg Wilhelm um, talks about how to to basically deal with an encounter in in some sort of confined space, like a a gully or a, a forest ravine or something like that, where you don't have a lot of room to work. So that's clearly a, you know, you're running into a, a hostile in, in the woods, essentially, hmm. and you don't have a lot of room to work. So here's what you do. Obviously, that's not a judicial duel in a, no. a big open enclosure. This, this is some sort of skirmishing or warfare context. And so the more you dig for those kind of things, the more you find those. Um, the, um, the wrestling in the, the von Baumann's fight book has a whole section on, on holding captives. Um, right. 
Well, why would you be holding captives? Well, because you captured them, obviously. So yes, and then you're going to ransom them. Hopefully. Yeah. So the, one of two things is happening: either you're some sort of law enforcement um, uh, person, and you're dealing with some uh, malefactors, or more likely, you've captured other troops and and have to hold on to them. Uh, so there's all kinds of little things like that that where you look carefully, you find this much broader spectrum of where this art was used, and um, and we have to keep in mind too. You know, you wouldn't learn uh, a different martial art for fun than you would for your everyday life. Life is busy. You know? Yeah, um, and you, you would use different aspects of it when fencing your friends as when murdering your enemies. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So it's it was used for everything, and um, and that's something I'm I'm really stressing with students these days. As, as I said before, it's a major focus of of the book, um, and uh, really helps to frame it. Yeah, now, just before we get into the some details of the books, I have some questions about that. Um, this whole social media thing, I think you're very brave even saying anything on social media because quite a while ago, I just stopped posting anything on social media except I have an automated system that automatically posts stuff that I have produced, which shares it out onto social media so people can find my stuff if they want to. But I don't look at the comments. I don't answer anything I don't I don't have because it's just I I perhaps I just lack the mental fortitude to go into that arena and come out with my sanity intact <laughs> so I just I just stay away from it completely yeah and I'm my participation is limited I I will say I, I maintain a presence for a couple of reasons one one there are there are people that um I don't engage with because, you know, anybody that simply wants to, you know, just, just take a piss at somebody, I don't, I don't have time to do that. That's, that's sure. life's too short. And, um, and there are people that hold some very ridiculous ideas that I don't want to engage with for, for obvious reasons there too. But there are folks that are, are very earnest, but maybe have not trained with great people so far mm-hmm. that I see are, they're, they're climbing the hill. They, they're trying to get, get to something, get to where they try to embody the art and, and those are folks that I try, I try to throw a few hints at here and there. You know, I won't get into like a right. big long debate or something, but I'll say, hey, here's, here's what this passage says. Maybe you should give that a little thought, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it can be a, a lot of work, but there's a few people on that engaging with them is, is very pleasant. And, and you can see you make a difference and that's rewarding. But what I but I have become very guarded about what things I get involved in. I don't get involved in political discussions on social media, there's, you know, in, in the echo chambers people live in these days, you're not going to change very many minds anyway. So really it ends up just being venting, uh, which yeah. is not always very helpful. And there are people that are very entrenched in in uh, what they think about this art that I'm not going to reach either. Uh, so I don't expend the energy there. So it's, I make my, I try to make my choices very carefully. Yeah. And I, I do the sort of, um, helping beginners thing through, well, people send me email questions like regularly. And, you know, I answer those in a helpful and timely manner. And that's that. But I don't, I don't go looking for it because there's just so many of them. I also have, um, for, um, like, like my, my own students, um, and actually all podcast guests get an invitation to this as well. So I'll be sending you an invitation shortly. Oh, um, to a, my private discord server, 
which is just for the school and said you won't find any bad behavior there'll be complete beginners and there'll be people like Jessica Finley and Michael Chillister but but it basically it cuts out all of the all of the monkeys in the gallery throwing peanuts <laughs> right <laughs> or worse things yes yes um, good way to good way to keep the fascists out right right well that too yeah absolutely <laughs> um so yeah that's so because i mean that kind of discussion is helpful and useful but i find if that doing it on some something like facebook the just just reading the comments i mean i have family history of high blood pressure and what have you and just reading the comments i can just feel those genes kicking in and it's not it's not good for my longevity. Yeah, no, I, I, I can sympathize. I understand. Yeah. Um, okay, so coming back to your book. All right, here's a question. Tell me, Christian, why is a word worth a thousand pictures? Well, of course, it's a very provocative chapter. Time, I know. Right? And, uh, uh, I, and you know, I just home straight in on it. When you yeah, sent me the yes, book. of course. Uh, well, that's, that's good. Um, yeah. So the chapter's point is not to dismiss the utility of pictures in mm. fight books in Toto. Um, it is, however, to create a, a cautionary mindset. And really, this kind of call, calls right back to uh, our earlier discussion of uh, bumbling about with the Pisani Dossi with, you know, the, the, the pasted in uh, translation there, right? Right. If that's all you got to go on, um, results results are not good. Um, but better than nothing. Yeah, they are better than nothing. Well, in some cases, um, the problem with relying on medieval art without context and without having a trained eye to look at it is their their art is representational. There is no concept in the fifteenth century of depicting a an instant in time this this is right. that, that is that is a product of the modern world um, and so we might look at an illustration and um, and I believe I direct people to it maybe not in that chapter but certainly in the one on the uh, dueling shield combat from the gladiatoria manuscript where if we look carefully at the illustrations not only are we not looking at an instant of time but there are reasons to believe that elements of the technique and the counter to it are both represented there. Right. So, so we have a uh, we we have something that symbolizes what is going on in the technique and its counter, but it is not an instant. And so, and I, I think in in part of that chapter, I say, um, you know, it used to be a, a compliment. Hey, you look just like the picture. And I'm like, eh, maybe that's not a compliment. We think it is. Uh, because the picture is symbolic. It is representational. Now, when we look at um, the mammoth treatise on the Messer by uh, Hans uh, Lekushner, uh, you know, I think we almost have to conclude that in many ways the pictures are intended almost more for indexing and finding what you're looking for than helping you. There's this one really elaborate show technique where you just keep beating the guy up. You're like delivering blow after blow, circling him around. It's obviously some showy kind of thing. And we have this one illustration there of, okay, here he is hitting. The, obviously, you can't learn a technique that involves eight different steps by looking at a single image. Right. So that can't have been the intent of that image is, here, I'm going to teach you this, this technique with this one image. Not possible. 
So I think in many ways, some of these are, are used as indexing or referential. Um, it's not to say that you can't glean things from them, but you have to use medieval art with great care. Now, um, it, it's interesting in Paul, the Paulus Cowell manuscript, we, um, we see a representation of the Krumpau, the crooked stroke, and this is a blow uh, delivered with the hands crossed. The idea is basically to step away from your opponent, but still be able to hit them by striking across the line of engagement. Well, okay, so Cal, uh, the artwork is quite lavish, it's quite beautiful, and uh, but when we look at the, the depiction of this strike being done, the arms are shown in this contorted, crazy position. Uh, now, was the artist incapable of drawing it a little bit more real, realistically? I think they were. I think what we're seeing symbolically is he's really trying to drive home the idea that, yes, you have to cross the arms to do this. So I'm going to over, you know, over uh, exemplify this uh, to, uh, to, to drive home that point. By the same token, um, there's a lot of useful you know, kinesthetic things we can get out of the manuscript. The one thing I learned bumbling about with uh, Cal's wrestling was, hmm, you know what? There's a lot of stuff that's not photorealistic here, but pay attention to where his foot placement is because mm. it really is actually kind of critical. Um, so yes, there's data there, but it is uh, gelatinous data. <laughs> is, I think it varies though from manuscript to manuscript because for example, in the Getty manuscript from Fiore, it is, it is much closer to being, you should look exactly like this. Because in every case that I can think of, I have found that when I look more like the picture, the technique works better. So, oh yeah, there's definitely there's cases the whole where, style is different. Yeah, like we there's have, definitely cases where you should look like it. It's just um, going through and I will replicate all the pictures is not a starting point for a manuscript. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it helps to start with the text. And and you know we we find things too, coming back to Lacutioner again, we find things where if we take the image at face value, it apparently contradicts the text. Right. So we'll see a thing where it says, um, you're going to spring out and attack the left side of the opponent. Uh, and the artwork shows, um, shows across what appears to be a cross step, which would preclude your being able to do that. So, what should we glean from that? Well, maybe the art is not telling us this is the foot placement. Maybe it's saying, by the way, this guy here on the right, he's the one that's winning this encounter. You know, who knows? There's, there may be meanings there that our modern eyes do not perceive. Um, or, as I you know, said, as speculated earlier, maybe it's even not that important. As long as it kind of looks like the technique, hey, this gets you to the right page and now you can read the text. That's, I mean, and when you look at top level practitioners of any art, say, I know, a particular style of karate or a particular style of kung fu or kickboxing or whatever, they all look different. They're yes. all doing the same art, very clearly the same art, and they have all these sort of black belts and what have you in those arts. But they don't fight the same and they don't look the same. They move differently, they prioritize different tactics. Um, so. So yeah, I think I think the notion that everybody doing historical martial arts should look exactly like the pictures is is obviously not ideal. Doesn't work very well. Yeah. Um, actually, we were talking about Fiore earlier. In the fifth play of the Abrazzare, the wrestling, uh, he shows a particular takedown where the person's got you 
sort of grabbed around the waist and you put one hand on their jaw, the other hand on their hip and you sort of twist them off their feet. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the sixth player is the counter to that and it's clearly impossible because it requires the person doing the original technique to change hands on your face, right? Which doesn't make any sense, right? But the text says, you know, basically, of the hand that offends your face, that's the elbow to push. Right. Right? So the picture shows what what the technique would look like if they were using the other hand, whereas the previous one shows what the technique looks like when they're using the right hand. So it's, it is impossible to do that technique correctly and look exactly like the picture, right? But yeah, there's, a, there's, one, uh, there's one conclusion of a Polax play in Paulus Cowell that we still have, we have no idea how it's supposed to work because it has <laughs> just, you know, a, a very little text to it, just kind of mm-hmm. a caption. And there's no way you can get from the previous image to, to that one. <laughs> so right. It's still a mystery. We really don't know. Yeah. yeah. We have similar sort of um, like mysteries in, in Fiora. And it's, I think sometimes it may be just the artist drew the wrong thing. Sometimes it's like with the Abrazari play I, I talked about earlier. It could be just this is a version of it that you would do against a different version of the previous technique maybe coming from the other side or whatever. Um, and and, and you know, sometimes we just have to dig the person up and ask them. <laughs> yeah, and there's, you know, and there's shortcuts the artists t- uh, did too, because, you know, and I, I talk about this, you know, one of the most notorious misinterpretations, which unfortunately made its way into a television oh, <laughs> special, was, was this interpretation from a, a Talhofer plate that this is, this is an unarmored guy fighting a guy in full, full gothic plate armor. Oh, God. And, <laughs> and of course, you know, right away, if, if you know how armored combat works, you, you look at this and you go, why would the guy in armor be, you go at the half sword, allowing this guy to get close to him? Why wouldn't he just cut him down from a distance? You right. Know? Yes. Um, but what it really is, is, is the artist is signaling, I'm going to transition to not drawing the armor anymore. Um, uh, I'm, not, okay. I'm not getting paid enough to draw every goddamn rivet on this guy's harness. So, <laughs> so the next plate after this is going to continue to show armored techniques, which you can tell by the targeting that's used. But we're going to just draw them in doublets and hose. Um, and um, you see a similar thing in the in the Gladiatorius series. Gauntlets are not drawn in most plates. Um, as any cartoonist knows, drawing hands is very difficult, which is why uh, Linus and Lucy of Peanuts fame only have four fingers, okay. <laughs> like most cartoon characters. And so the, the gauntlets are not drawn so that we can see hand positioning relatively easily, except in the two techniques where, that involve thrusting into the cuff of the gauntlet. There right. the artist has to show them because it's part and parcel of how the technique works. So you have to look at these things carefully. Yeah. Now, this, this brings me on to a, a question that I, I've been thinking about for getting on for 20 years, and I'm not even close to an answer. Okay? Generally speaking, the sort of people who carried swords had armor. Most medieval combat is armored combat, at least at, at the point where it's being written down in a treatise. There are exceptions, but okay. So why 
do we have so much unarmored longsword stuff in Fiore, and why do we have so much unarmored longsword stuff in the German material? What's it doing there? Um, I think there's my, I would give a combination of, of answers to that. One, um, on the march, certainly light gear is often worn even by very wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, there's the self-defense context um, where, again, you, you know, you're not walking around in harness all the time. Um, and, um, and we have some evidence of, of unarmored duels happening. Um, sure. One is certainly implied in the the von Baumans. There's that that panoply scene of uh, of two uh, duelists armed with long swords and daggers. Um, a presiding noble attended by a fool, and we know it's a duel because there's two coffins there with candles on them. Right. <laughs> Somebody's going home in one of those. Uh, <laughs> it's not not the most uh, desirable trip to be made, but yeah, you know, it's it's a carriage. Um, and we have some some records of encounters between uh, masters fighting funny fighting some sort of unarmored duel. I, I talk about a couple of those. Yeah, Fiore so, has he, he refers well, to that's right. All he's masks. wearing is some sort of a gambeson or something. That's right. And, uh, a and a pair of leg- yeah, that's right. Yeah, leather gloves. And that's it. So that's that's some of your context there. But you know, people carried swords, um, particularly in the countryside. You know, a lot of a lot of towns had rules about hey, you you turn your sword in when you enter town, but um, but yeah, people got into scraps and they, they weren't always armored. Uh, you know, the idea of, uh, of armies on the, on the move in full, full plate is, is generally a misconception. Uh, light gear would be worn on the march. You might be ambushed. Um, so, you know, delivering against, uh, against less protected targets. If we look at, uh, the Talhofer images of the, the mounted combats that occur between lightly armored troops there, they're wearing a breastplate, an open-faced helmet. And, uh, and little else. So uh, it's still a target-rich environment there. So a lot of your Blossvestion, your unarmored combat techniques would work just fine. Okay. And I think also, too, it's the, you know, learning the longsword without armor, if you think about it, is the most diverse grouping of mechanics you can learn with a weapon, right? Because the hands are close together, um, allowing very powerful strokes to be delivered, but allowing you to change direction by just how the hands are posited against each other, right? So there's a lot of complexity to be learned out of using a, um, a relatively lightweight two-handed weapon, such as a longsword. So it's, it's an admirable weapon to act as an exemplar for, for all sorts of combat. And it's clearly the, um, it's clearly the, um, at least in the German material, it is, it's the foundational stuff, right? And we see this reflected even in um, in Maximilian's uh, you know uh, beefed up autobiographical stuff that I talk about at the end of the book, where it, the progression of his training, he learns the un- unarmored combat and then uh, progresses in- into the armored combat from from there. So I think we're seeing that reflected even in the the training of of someone at the upper echelons of society. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and it's a it's a nice nuanced reply. We like we like that on this show. <laughs> um, the okay, you mentioned Maximilian, and there is a fa- fabulous image in. Um, I I can't remember if it's in your book because I have a memory like a goldfish. Uh, I know it's in Mike Lode's book about swordsman or. 
historical swords. Um, and it is a picture of Maximilian basically with his training partner crossed with a longsword with their, his fencing master sort of watching the two of them. Yes. In the foreground, there's a pair of messes on the ground with gauntlets and in the, um, in the background, there's a pair of quarterstaffs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one thing that I'm going to float a theory at you, which I think we talked about before some, some while ago, but I think it might be interesting for the listeners to hear it anyway. Um, okay. From what I can see of the German sources, most of the stuff that Italian styles would put in the beginner's course seems to be missing from the Lichtenary material. But it's all there in the Messer, particularly if you go to Lacushna. So my feeling would be that you teach people Messer first and all the basics, then move up from the Messer to the longsword. And then you have Lichtenau's like specific fancy stuff, Winden and, and Meisterhau and whatnot, as like the advanced course. How does that theory fit with your experience? Well, so the problem with with that and why I think the longsword is the principal weapon is it is in play in that portion of German culture before the Messer. Okay. Um, the Messer really does not seem to be a big deal until the mid-15th century. Um, okay. And it's one of the things that brought me to, to really make a strong argument about uh, manuscript 3227A, which has often been touted as very early, to not being that early, because oh, really? it, okay. it says that the Messer is some sort of foundational thing. And we just don't, we don't see evidence of the Messer being a thing at all in the 14th century. And its appearance in fight books is sparse until we get into the, the 1450s, the late 1450s. Yeah. Um, the earliest appearance of, of the Messer is um, in two plates in um, one of the early Talhoffers and where it's shown paired with, uh, with bucklers. Yep. And, um, so really, there's not substantial messer material for quite a while until we, you know, we get well into the 15th century. And the thing where we also have to be careful with, too, is you know, Lichtenauer mentions messer in his prologue, but the evidence suggests that when he means a messer, he means a short messer, a knife. Like a knife, yeah. Um, and, and we can see that in that the only place he talks about it is in the mounted combat where it is clearly the backup weapon, not the primary cutting weapon. It is, it's something that's being worn on the right hip, uh, not, not in a sword yeah, position. So it's a knife. Yeah, so it's a knife. Or, yeah, a, dagger, or right. a dagger even. Yeah, so it's not a longus messer. It's just a messer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's why, uh, you know, we see so much of you know, later on in, in, in Lekushner's work, we see a lot, of, a lot of wrestling, of course, with the messer. Uh, but, of course, you have a free hand. The whole time, yeah. you know, it's inherently more grapply because the left hand is just waiting there to do something. Um, and the fight ends up being, a, it tends to be a little bit more close quarters. So you're much more likely to, to end up in a, a grapple earlier on uh, rather than making a more uh, committed entry with the longsword. So, yeah, we do see a lot more of that there. Now, why doesn't the least in our material start off with 
hey, you know what? Let me teach you how to how to wrestle um, and how to protect yourself with the dagger, a la Fiori. Um, that's a really excellent question. It may have something to do with what was expected at what age before you came to do this sort of formal training in um, the two different um, arenas, north and south of the Alps. Hard, hard to know. Um, we do know, of course, that wrestling was something people did of all ages and across all social strata. Uh, so, you know, coming in with some wrestling knowledge you know, f from your know, childhood would have certainly been expected. Um, why does Fiori stress that as the, you know, the first thing he presents and all? Um, it's, it may just be because he's structured his guard system and his tactical framework around wrestling. So it's important for him to, to put not just wrestling there, but his take on wrestling, his curriculum for wrestling, because it's going to, it foreshadows everything else he's going to show you, right? Sure. And the least and our approach just may be just different from that. It is interesting how, despite those differences in, in how the pedagogy is presented, um, how close the two arts end up looking to each other anyway, right? But, yeah, I mean, especially, okay, I think the, the, the biggest difference is in some of the longsword plays, unarmored longsword yeah, plays. That's right. Where you, you have like your Zverkows and Krumpaus and what have you that are just not there in the Fury. Um, and likewise, we have a lot more of the sort of wrestling at the sword with the long sword, I think, than you find in many of the German sources. Yes, definitely. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me that, okay, if I was creating a curriculum for teaching people how to fight with swords, I don't think I could do that using the contents of the Zettel alone. I think I would have to add in a bunch of stuff that I would probably source from the Mesa to teach beginners how to do a basic parry. You know, wait on the left side and when they come and strike, beat it out of the way and hit them. Right? I th so, um, where do you stand on that? Where, where would you go to find like the, the fundamental, truly basic actions of the longsword? Well, I mean, I think I've done what I can to, to tease them out from hints, right? And obviously, right. you see what I think that is in, in, in my training book, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, I have, there's a lot of basic stuff on stance and, and uh, you know, what, what does cover mean and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we have little hints here and there, obviously, you know, that intimations that, you know, the basic strikes are the, the Oberhau and the Unterhau, strikes from above and below on both sides. Um, and that those in turn make up some basic parries as well. So they're in there, but they're not, they're not presented as plays the way we see in the Messer. And, by, and we should be careful when we say we see those basics in the Messer, we're really not talking Locutioner. Locutioner goes right into, here's my Zettel and here's my thing. Yeah. But we have these little mini Messer treatises like in the Glasgow and elsewhere yeah. where there's like nine or 10 techniques and they're, they're all very, very basic. You know, here's a, yeah. here's a cover and a follow on blow. Here's another cover. Here's, you know, three different parries. You know, if you get into real trouble, here's how you brace, you know, your parry with, with the left hand, you know, basically a half sorting parry. So, yeah, that's all real, you know, messer for dummies, right? Right. Um, and um, there is some, there's some long sort stuff out there like that, too. I, and it's interesting you asked about this today because just yesterday – I realized I, I hadn't looked at all at the, the so-called Hans Foles uh, manuscript. Foles was a, a Meistersinger, actually. Um, 
but there's a manuscript attributed to him that also has a, a brief section on fighting. And it looks to me like it's really basic, you know, long sword for dummies kind of stuff. Uh, don't hold me to that because I haven't translated it. I'm <laughs> literally looking at this last night. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, um, while we're on a speculative bent, how about why is there no Falchion, Nessa, Storta, Tritos in Italian? Oh. The damn well should be because we have plenty of Italian Nessa like swords, although they tended to call them Stortas. Well, I would argue, I would probably say you don't need it because Fiori has sword in one hand. And we have more than one German author that says, look, the Messer curriculum is how you fight with single handed weapons. Boom. So um, I would say you have the equivalent there. It's very, it's not a huge section of, of Fiori, but I think when you look at that and juxtapose but, what you know from the dagger already, you've got, you got quite a bit to play with there. Oh, sure, you have, you have plenty to play with, but I mean, that's like clearly illustrated as a, as a longsword. He's using a longsword in one hand. Right. It's not illustrated as a single-handed sword. Um, and you think that by 1500, at some point between 1400 and 1500, someone would have written a book telling people how to fight with a very common weapon that, that even people like Cosimo de' Medici in the 16th century was carrying. Right? I was literally in the Wallace collection last weekend and I saw Cosimo de' Medici's falchion because every time I go to the Wallace collection I always have to have a look at the Medici falchion because it's gorgeous. Um, I was like, but why do we have no sources? You know, we could ask the same question. Why why in either tradition do we have nothing about, um, you know, I don't know, a single-handed battle axe or a mace or yeah. any of that we don't have we really don't have much for other than fighting with the the dueling shield we have next to nothing about you know uh, shorter impact weapons um so yeah there's a lot i think that you have to infer uh, but you know i think it, it comes down to at some point when you get the first principles down enough you should be able to fight with you know a pool cue a lawn chair um, <laughs> you know a monkey wrench yeah, um, maybe a carrot or a banana. If push comes to shove, you know you should be able to take the principles and adapt to what you have. The banana is not my first go-to, of course, but <laughs> and also very hard to find in medieval Europe. Well, yeah, there is that complication. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I have a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests, and um, the first of which is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? The best idea I haven't acted on. Um, yeah, I you know I I read your question before on that, and I'm like I'm gonna have to really think about how to answer that one. The best idea I haven't acted on. Um, well, I mean I can give a little preview, I suppose, right? So I mean the the fighting with the German longsword is has been uh, has been pretty well received, uh, and um, so. I do have some things in the pipeline, fighting with the German dagger and fighting with the German messer okay. are things that are percolating in my head. Right uh, I'll now. be buying those when they come out. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be, I, I'm, I'm actually toying with doing something absolutely insane, um, which ahead. is maybe to try to do the two books at roughly the same time so that the, the structures are, are kind of reflective of each other. Um, but that may be a fever, fever dream that passes and I, I may do something more sane and do them in, in ser you know, serially instead of in parallel. Um, but those are both on the docket. Um, 
the other thing too, it's always it's always tempting. It's tempting to do a a book that is takes just the zettel and does my own gloss in photos. Oh, I would love to see that. Um, I would love to see that. So that there's some temptation to do something like that. Um, starting to run out of titles for it. Though. I don't know what the hell I call that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. A um, medieval martial arts miscellany. You've got the alliteration all, all tied up there. So I don't know something. Um, yeah, it's a shame that, that none of your names begin with a G because then it could be like you know if it was I was writing it would be Guy's Gloss, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> It could be Tobler's oh, Tome. Wanderings. Sorry? It could be Tobler's Tome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, we, we want something that means sort of like uh, almost whimsical exploration. Okay. Yeah. You know, the one area that I I would love to see get better exploration and someone do presentation, but I'm, I'm not the one with the resources or skill set to do it, is uh, the mounted combat just needs a lot more, a lot oh. more um, interrogation. It really does, and um, um, and the you know the frustrating thing about the mounted combat guy is it's it's so it's so amazing it's so cool there's so much cool stuff in there, and yet it's incredibly hard to present the material. You just need all these you know the skill set and the resources and the right horses and the right gear and blah blah blah, and then even if you did all that, you're still going to have a fraction of practitioners that are able to make use of it. It's you know right. we're just not a horse culture anymore. And, um, you know, so preserving that part of the art is, is challenging. It is challenging. Yeah. I have sort of preliminary plans to assist people who do have the horses and the riding skills and the interest to recreate, for example, all of Fiore's mounted combat plays, at least on video. Right. So how I think they would go, um, obviously modified by the experience of the people who are actually really good riders. I mean, I'm a good enough rider to know that I'm not nearly a good enough rider to do the mounted combat stuff. <laughs> yeah, here's the um, same thing here. <laughs> and I, I think I think it's going to, I think, I would guess like within five years from now, and we're recording this in March 2022, I think we will have a pretty solid... Um, Sort of video recording of all of at least all of Fiore's plays. I am I am no expert on the Lichtenauer stuff, so we need to get somebody else. Who can I think of who's good at Lichtenauer stuff? Who might be able to advise my friends who are thinking about doing that? Hmm, Christian, <laughs> <laughs> can I volunteer your services to my friends if they want to do the Lichtenauer yeah, stuff? Yeah, and you know, and, and you know, Jess, Jess, is, uh, Jess Finley is doing some stuff with that too. Yes, yes. Um, so. Um, you know, as far as the mechanical understanding of it goes, she's certainly, you know, much farther along on that track than I am. Um, but yeah, you know, it's stuff I looked at. I, I did an interesting class with my local guys, you know, right before pandemic hit, um, where we, I did sort of an interpretation. What if you, what if you took some of these plays and did them on foot? What might they look like? And obviously mm -hmm. they don't all translate to that, but, but you, you come up with some interesting stuff, even going through that exercise. So sure, and with Fiora's mounted combat plays, they look an awful lot like the foot plays anyway. You just, you just have a horse doing the footwork for you. It, right. So, I mean, there are some specific horse stuff, like, you know, where he, he reaches over, grabs the bridle, and gets his horse to nudge the other horse so it falls onto the ground. 
right? Which is just it's judo on horseback. It's just so cool. Um, can't really do that on foot, but a lot of it is really basically just parry and strike. And as yep. you're moving past them, strike them again from behind. Um, it's not yeah, complicated. It, and it's um, a, a lot of the a lot of the lessons about focusing on the the outside of your opponent. Um, really, in the in the German material, is is best found in the mounted combat. So right. I've paid, paid a lot more attention to the la- that in the last couple of years, certainly. Yeah. Okay. So so we need to we need basically to ginger up the mounted combat enthusiasts out there to, to get cracking on some of this interpretive work. Excellent. Okay. Now, my last question. If you had a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the idea that, that it's very hard to change the world, but you can do a lot to change your own little corner of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I would want to use that to, to make myself more available um, I have a day job. I have a mortgage. Um, my time is limited. Space is limited. Uh, I would, um, if I had the money to do it, I would not have a day job. I would either live in a different place or make amendments to where I do live to be able to have indoor training um, for as many people as I like uh, year round. Um, what um, you know what Jess is doing these days, where she's able to uh, host folks for intensives. That's that's very appealing to me, but I have I can't practically do it. So really, what I what I would do is I would I would maximize my being able to focus on doing this stuff and not have to maintain a career elsewhere. So <laughs> um, sure, I have no idea how people manage to do this stuff to any level at all and have some other kind of career. I just. I, I, how do you find the time? Well, honestly, it has changed, Guy. Um, so when when we first met, I was a consulting engineer. And so, you know, being able to, uh, you know, the, almost the drop of a hat, say, hey, I'm not going to come in Friday. I'm going to travel to Oklahoma and teach a, a seminar <laughs> was, was something I could do back in the day. And that's that's since I've been working as a, a full-time employee, that is not a, a luxury I have in my schedule. So it has changed things. It has slowed down how uh, how books are produced, time I have for writing. You know, if, when you're staring at a computer all day for your, your day job, it's very hard sometimes to then do another three hours of that writing in the evening. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, that, that change in my, my daily life has affected a change in my efficiency, if you will, as a historic martial arts researcher and, and teacher. So that would be... Not only, you know, your, your million dollars, which, you know, you're very gracious to offer, of course, I do appreciate it. Um, your, your million dollars would, uh, would not only restore me back to what it was when I was first doing this, it would be, you know, a step above and beyond that, which was, of course, very appealing. Okay, so you would build a cell and give up the day job so you could just spend all your time researching and teaching the art. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. That's that's a pretty solid use of the money, I would say. Um, I mean, there there should be maybe money left over for like bursaries for visiting students who can't necessarily afford to fly to Connecticut on their own dime. Oh well, you know, I I I, I can't uh, boast of Nicole Allen's con- continual hospitality, but I, I do consider uh, 
our humble abode here also a, a place for wayward martial artists. So, <laughs> yeah, as, as, as you as you personally know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and one of the reasons why I rented a full time sal long before it was a financially prudent thing to do, and in fact, it was never a financially prudent thing to do. But what the hell? Um, was so that visiting students could quite illegally, I think, because, you know, we weren't set up for like, you know, we didn't have any kind of license for having people stay the night there or anything, but people would, would sleep there and cook there and shower there and what have you. And so if they could just get to the saddle, they, they had a place to stay and weapons to train with and a space to train in. And it made a huge difference to how practical it was for people to, you know, travel across the world and come train. Mm, yeah, no um, doubt. So, okay, so so your your million dollars. <laughs> you're not the first person who has suggested I would give up the day job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and and you know, it's not like I I dislike my day job. Um, it's it's interesting work, and I, I work with very excellent people. So I'm I'm very I'm very blessed, um, particularly to uh, and, and especially being able to work from home as I do these days. Um, remain uh, very gainfully employed. And um, and have uh, good folks to work with and work for. So it's uh, my speculations on the million dollars is is by no means a, com- a complaint against my very fortunate circumstances. Sure, sure. But you know, compared to engineering, I think swords are more fun. Oh well, that goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> and also perhaps closer to the nobler dream. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. Although. Uh, my company does make um, make a lot of stuff that's used in um, healthcare research. Uh, we actually made one of the one of the uh, most used um, COVID tests. One of the oh, really? PCR tests. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't work in that specific division, you know, so I, I'm not in those laboratories. But mm-hmm. um, but the company is, is is heavily involved in that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm glad I work for a company that does that kind of stuff rather sure. than, you know, manufacturing missiles and bombs, for instance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So not, not too far away from the noble dream then. Hope, hopefully not too far. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Christian. It's been great talking to you again. Oh, absolutely. And please, uh, you know, our, my comment about your earlier visit was a hint hint to go, uh, come and see us again. So <laughs> I'd love to. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christian. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. While you're there, you could also, if you felt like it, hit one of the fancy sharing buttons and share this episode with all of your friends. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Nazia Mahmood, who is an astrophysicist, aerospace engineer, aspiring citizen astronaut. Okay, that's interesting, but... She's also a sword person through and through, as you will find out when you listen to the show. You don't want to miss that. 
So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Thank you.